Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Terry Fluker, Arts Industry Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. In the studio with me today is Betsy Bradley. Betsy is the Director of the Mississippi Museum of Art. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You, of course, have a lot of exciting things going on at the museum, but first I want to get to know a little bit more about you. Tell me, where were you born? I was born in Greenville, Mississippi, right in the heart of the Delta, um, in a community on the river. It's a really special place to grow up. Yes. um, When we have guests, I always ask them to, um, especially those that are from the Delta, to describe the Delta for those that have never been there before. Well, it's a an incredibly rich and interesting place. It is very much formed by its geography. The the river is a, a great uh, force, I would say, in the culture. And, of course, the earth itself, that rich soil um, that surprises people that it's in the middle of a state, kind of, or the northern part of a state, um, and the agricultural industry um, there. So um, the the flatness of it um, is very, very soothing to me whenever I go home, and I, I still do. My mother still lives there, and I kind of go down the hill from Yazoo City into the Delta. It's, it's I have this enormous sense of peace. Um, But I also know that my experience growing up there, um, while very rich intellectually and educationally and very comfortable socially, was only one side of the story of growing up in the Delta, and um, that there are many others. There are many people who um, paid for my comfortable lifestyle um, by by their histories of their families either being enslaved or mistreated for the production of of those rich crops. So it is a land of uh, disparity. It's a land of great contrast. Um, The contrast produced great culture in that the wealthy, educated um, white folks in the Delta produced some of the, the world's greatest literature. And the people not so wealthy and um, disenfranchised produce some of the world's greatest music. So um, the culture kind of levels people in some way. Um, it doesn't make anything fair, but it is a, a kind of a rich byproduct of a, of a divided and um, inequitable place. Yes. What are some of your fondest memories growing up in the Delta? Well, you know, the people mainly and some of the um, the opportunities we had to, especially in school when we were reading literature written by people who had actually lived in our own community and grown up there, um, that's pretty inspiring for someone who is kind of predisposed to love art and literature as I was. Um, there were writers all around and and artists, and um, it was also a fairly unique place in the 
Delta in that it was, you know, a little more open-minded and a little less exclusive in a lot of ways. Um, And so we had a great mix of people from different backgrounds. We had, you know, a rich Catholic community made of, of immigrants from Lebanon and and Italy, we had a very rich Chinese community, um, and the Jewish community was really strong. I'd go to temple with my friends a lot. Um, so, you know, it, it was a bit of a melting pot, which tends to happen, of course, in a river town. Mm-hmm. But the port was so thriving, and the big old barges coming down the rivers, um, all of that made it an exciting time in the 60s and 70s. And um the economy hasn't been so kind to the Delta, but um, it flourished in the days when I was growing up. Yes, every time I think about Greenville, I always think about um, the writer Hotting Carter and yes. um, and sort of the work that he was doing as a as a journalist uh, right. in that um, in that community. I think some right. profound work. Uh, right. I mean, they won a Pulitzer Prize mm-hmm. in the '60s for their coverage of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's a legacy we're proud of. Yes. Who's your favorite writer? You mentioned writing, and um, and I know you are a very talented writer, I must say. Um, <laughs> well, and uh, But who, who influenced you early on? You know, I, um, I studied literature. That was my um, academic pursuit was an undergraduate degree in Millsap's um, in English, and I went to Vanderbilt in graduate school thinking I would get a Ph.D. in English literature and teach. So I have so many writers I love. I love the English romantic poets. I also love um, the writers from Mississippi and from the Delta. You know, I, I learned early on to love uh, Welty and some of the writers from here. I really love to follow Richard Ford's writing now. Um, but, you know, I I just love good literature. So I, can't, I couldn't tell you who my favorite writer is. I just continue to love reading, especially novels that read like poems. I think, uh, like Virginia Woolf's, some of her work does, some of Michael Cunningham's work. Um, I'm now reading a book by Colm Tobin about Henry James called The Master, and it's just a beautiful book that combines um, art and literature in a magical way. What do you think about the writing and the photography of Eudora Welty? Well, she's, you know, she's such a unique person in that um, her humility just informs everything so that her personality gets lost um, for the sake of the subject and the way she can take on different voices and put herself or her narrator in the place of different minds. I mean, I'm thinking about that incredibly powerful story she wrote after the murder of Medgar Evers and... um, and how she could get into the hatred of the assassin um, in a way that everybody who knew her knew was not her personal um, 
mindset. She does the same thing in photography. The subjects overcome the image. Um, There's that one beautiful photograph of uh, the ruins of Windsor where her shadows in the picture. But um, but that's not an ego thing. Um, that's that's artistic. And um, again, I think I think we get to see the people in the subjects in her photography in a very uh, intimate and personal way that is strikingly different from what most of the WPA photographers who traveled in this region were able to accomplish. I, I agree with you. Um, uh, I think what she did so brilliantly was to be able to, y- when she captured these images uh, with her photography and off, off also with her writing, you're able to get a sense that she really knew those people, right? You know, right? And there, the, and and then of course, as a viewer, viewer, it makes you you know, sort of connect. Exactly. You know. And you can tell they trusted her. Yes. Um, and were comfortable with her taking their pictures. You don't always get that in that kind of documentary photography. Yes. Um, uh, a really uh, brilliant um, native daughter. Right. Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about, you know, obviously your work at the Mississippi Museum of Art, but... Um, this year, the Mississippi Arts Commission turns 50, and, um, and of course, you are a part of that 50-year uh, history. Uh, tell us about your tenure at the Mississippi Arts Commission. Working at the Arts Commission was one of the greatest experiences of my life. It really formed me as a professional and as a person who learned I'd never be able to separate what I care about personally from what I do as a profession. Um, It was rich and humbling. I got to travel to communities all over the state when I was the community arts director. And I remember thinking I was going to see some small town, you know, in East Mississippi, um, that one time I went to a town and drove through it and had to turn around and come back before I realized it. Um, and it was at that very in that very community where I thought, wow, this there is so much going on here, so much rich creativity and so many generous people who just give of themselves and their time to make sure that people in those communities have access to arts programs or art in the schools. Um, and so I always thought, you know, Jackson has a lot to learn from these communities around the state in, uh, in the spirit with which they approach um, creating an artistic and cultural environment for everyone who lives there. So I learned so much about my own states, my homes, um, culture and cultural traditions that I had never known being kind of sequestered in one part of the state. Um, I met incredible people, um, many of whom are still my good friends. And I, I learned that what we have um, in Mississippi is something that other states and other state arts agencies envied. Um, we were able to kind of do more with less and um, the kind of community spirit and um, the collegiality of the arts community um, was 
was something that my colleagues either on national boards or in other organizations really envied. So I, I gained a lot of knowledge. I gained a lot of relationships, but I also gained a lot of pride in what we're doing and a commitment to, to for the rest of my life, working to make our community as strong as it can through its arts, but also to make the rest of the nation aware of what we have here in Mississippi. Why is the Mississippi Arts Commission an important agency for our state beyond grants, beyond our grant mission? Well, I think to start with the very basics, I think that um, when Congress established the National Endowment for the Arts and when the National Endowment created an arts agency in every single state 50 years ago, um, it was an important statement that art and culture are as vital a part of federal services and our our organizational government um, as water and roads and schools. Um, it, it made a statement that this belongs at the heart of how we take care of our communities and our people and each other. And that is the same way, I think, about the state of Mississippi's commitment to the Mississippi Arts Commission. It is a way to, to symbolically say it's very important. And then, of course, the programs, the leadership, the convening ability of the Arts Commission, the research you all are able to do and share with the state is is something none of us who run arts organizations could do by ourselves. Yes, I, I think that we, we serve as, as great partners for one another, and, um, and certainly our partnership with the NEA is, is critical. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Turi Fluker, Arts Industry Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. In the studio with me today is Betsy Bradley. Betsy is the Director of the Mississippi Museum of Art, and we've been talking about Betsy's gro- uh, growing up in the Mississippi Delta, um, talking about the importance of the, the Mississippi Arts Commission. And I want to shift a little bit and kind of sort of... Um, continue that conversation about the importance of the Arts Commission, but also I want to talk about our uh, federal partner, which is the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, Of course, the NEA is committed to ensuring all Americans have access to the arts, as Betsy was saying, no matter who they are or where they live. Democracy demands wisdom and vision in its citizens, decreed the National Foundation on the Arts and Humanities Act of 1965, which created the NEA and the NEH. It must therefore foster and support a form of education and access to the arts and humanities. These are opportunities that no American should be denied. And Betsy, you were talking about, of course, the role of the Arts Commission and, of course, the NEA as our national um, partner. Um, but why is the NEA, in your um, opinion, um, an important federal agency? Well, again, I think it's important for our government to say that art is critical. The NEA does 
on a you know national level, what the Arts Commission does on the state level, which is it can make partnerships that one organization couldn't do alone. And so whether it's the um, the National Education Association or the Department of U.S. Department of Education or Transportation or Justice, um, these are partnerships that you know that result in very rich programming opportunities that come all the way down to someone like our museum or others. They also fund projects um, that that aren't commercially viable but are ma- are meaningful and that they matter. Um, so, you know, for example, the museum, uh, the Mississippi Museum of Art, spends about, or the average, let me take that back, the average art museum in this country spends about $56 on every visitor who walks through the door. The average visitor pays about $8. And so you can't earn your own way, no matter how great your shows are. Um, So that means there are a lot of ways we have to make up that difference, that 40-something dollar difference. We have to raise corporate sponsorships. We have to sell memberships. Um, we, we do all kinds of things for additional earned income. But at the end of the day, there's some things that a corporation or an individual is not going to invest in. And those are the important kinds of programs that can get support and do get support from the National Endowment for the Arts. For us, they supported um, a couple of years of hiring a fellow to go around the state and um, kind of turn up artists in communities or discover for us artists who have been in communities, have been producing great work that were kind of off our radar so that we could have a more kind of comprehensive look at the art being made in Mississippi. That kind of luxury of being able to send someone on the road and gather up that research um, couldn't have happened without the Arts Endowment. And we also benefit from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, another federal agency um, that has enabled us to rethink and redevelop how we teach students from art in our galleries. And so we've created an entirely new program where we train college students who are young and dynamic and energetic in the very latest pedagogy about teaching about art. And they're the tour guides. They're the ones that sit on the floor with students in front of art and talk about it. We couldn't have done that. Uh, We couldn't have paid those students from the four universities and colleges in Jackson to come learn and teach if we hadn't gotten a grant from IMLS. And now it's successful, and we can go raise money um, on a successful model. But um, getting that started, it was critical to have federal support. Yes, and I think that that is what I want people to really understand, and you, you articulated it so beautifully, is that, you know, it, these agencies are in Washington, but they have just 
enormous effect in the at the state on the state level in Mississippi in particular. They do, and they haven't always been great about it. Frankly, you know, there have been times when the funding their grants programs, you know, were heavily geared toward organizations on the two coast and maybe in Chicago. But part of the great beauty of them being part of a political process is, again, it's mirrored by the Arts Commission. There's political pressure to get those funds into every corner of the state. Every congressperson or senator wants to see that their people have benefited from this federal appropriation, just like every legislature, slator in Jackson wants their, their district to have some benefit. So, Again, if it were a private foundation, there wouldn't be that pressure. But because it's part of government, because it's part of a political process, there is that imperative to spread that money across the country. And they're doing so much of a better job now than 30 years ago. And um, I'm really grateful that they've adapted and learned and, and are sharing the resources more broadly. Absolutely. You know, um, you mentioned earlier that um, the work at the Mississippi Arts Commission and while you were there and of course the work that we continue to do um, sort of takes us out into the field. Um, It uh, brings us into close proximity to what other state arts agencies are doing and and honestly you know there are some really great art making going on of uh, in rural communities throughout this country um, great work that other state agencies are are helping to foster within their um, their areas so it's 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 a great thing that the the NEA and the NEH are are, are seeing that now and, and right. supporting that that's right. Yes. So in my opinion, um, and I want to switch gears a little bit um, to talk a little more about the work that you are doing at the Mississippi Museum of Art. Um, in my opinion, it seems that um, the Mu- Museum of Art is a fountainhead of attracting people from all walks to discuss art produced by Mississippians and those that practice in art that do art practice in other places. Uh, Why are places and spaces like the Mississippi Museum of Art important? Well, I'm glad that's your perception (laughs) of the museum, first of all. Um, And I feel it, too. Um, And that's certainly been our commitment. I think an art museum is the magical nexus of people, art, and place. And so at the center of that, if you were picturing a Venn diagram, at the center of that is, you know, a human being standing next to another human being um, interacting with a work of art. And sure, that can happen in a private home with something that you own. Um, But the community aspect of it and the ability to um, converse about a reaction to a work of art, to have a curator explain a little bit more about artistic intent or um, technique, Um, those kinds of levels of understanding that grow when when we're exploring something together is really important. I also think that when you're exploring artwork with somebody who's very different from yourself, from a completely different background, you will learn something about yourself, 
I know I do, um, about my own kind of predisposed uh, stereotypes or misunderstandings, and um, and you're held accountable um, in community in that way. So, you know, we we do. We have a beautiful space we can bring people together in. And, you know, that's our mission is to kind of start by just getting people there with with social events, with um, creative happenings, um, whether it's on Third Thursdays or um, Music in the City or other types of programming that we do, um, and get them in the space. And then they're surrounded by art. They, they want to do go further and further into the galleries or come back to hear a lecture that they might not have thought they would enjoy before. Um, And so that's what the beauty of a space that's always open, I think, offers um, to a community. I think it's. I think you all do really a, a brilliant job with that. Having been in this in the museum field for as long as I have, I've I've seen where, you know, uh, these spaces sometimes were sort of sterile and not as welcoming as um, as I was always thinking that they should be. Right. Uh, but to see the work that you're doing now, really inviting people and making people right. feel and feel comfortable and engaging their thoughts around um, around the art that's on the walls. Yeah, you know, because maybe I didn't kind of grow up professionally in the art museum field, um, it was important to me when we had an opportunity to design a building that would embody our mission of engagement between people and art, um, that we understand very carefully the the history of museums and that we understand why the Metropolitan is built to look like a temple. Uh, but that more than important than that is the place where we are. And the place where we are is a place that's typically been divided by educational achievement, by access to cultural dollars and cultural events. And so for me, knocking all those walls down and making a glass front with an inviting front yard um, was critically important to our being able to accomplish our mission. And so um, the look of it was the first kind of evidence of trying to create a welcoming place. And then, of course, it's the programming. It's It's how we treat people. It's the type of art we display that that reflects all of the different people who live and work here in Mississippi. It's important, and it's also, um, uh, you mentioned the building and the design of the building, you know, but it's 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 really the southern way, right? It's yes. the porch. <laughs> it's a front yard. That's right. It's a swing. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So all of those things. Um, I'm going to, uh, we're going to take a break, but I want to talk um, about how you ended up at the Mississippi Museum of Art. And um, and I also want to talk to you about uh, leadership and, and what that uh, looks like in your eye. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Turi Fluker, Arts Industry Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. In the studio with me today is Betsy Bradley. And Betsy is the Director of the Mississippi Museum of Art. We've just been chatting away about 
um, the importance of of space and place uh, when it comes to uh, cultural institutions, and in particular, Mississippi Museum of Art, and of course, our federal partners with the National Endowment for the Arts and, and Humanities and, and the acts that uh, established those uh, federal agencies and how important they are. Um, but I want to talk about how you got to the Mississippi Museum of Art. So you were at the Arts Commission, and um, and you um, take on an, a role of, of leading the Mississippi Museum of Art. How did you get there? Well, it never occurred to me, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I did begin kind of after I left ac- academia, my first arts administration job was at the Mississippi Museum of Art. I was the education director there. Um, And I learned a lot, um, three and a half or so years there. And then I went to a a Mississippi Arts Commission conference, and um, Jane Hyatt had recently become the director there. and, And I heard her speak about public art work and and the importance of it and I thought I've got to go work for her I just need to learn from her and so um, a job became available and and one of um, one of the people who worked at the Arts Commission at the time called me I remember I was in the lobby at what is now or what was the George Orr Museum. It was a satellite of the Mississippi Museum of Art at that time. And so somebody called me and said, we've got a spot at the Arts Commission. So I applied and and I became the community arts director. Well, 11 years later, um, Jane had left and um, retired and was on the board of the Mississippi Museum of Art. And um, I was incredibly happy at the Mississippi Arts Commission. We had just passed the first building fund for the arts bill, and we were going to get to distribute money to organizations across the state to, you know, re-renovate their buildings. And um, But Jane Hyatt called me and said, you know, Andy Moss has decided to leave the museum, and I think you should apply. And I said, but... I don't know how to run an art museum. And she said, well, we think that um, the museum needs somebody who understands the people of our state. Um, All of the directors of the museum before had come from out of state and were museum professionals. So, you know, I think that organizations um, go through cycles and that to get this museum started to be a really professional museum. They needed people to come in who had worked at other museums, who knew how to build a museum. But over the course of several directors who came from outside, there had been some bit of a disconnect with the local community. And so the the board saw that and wanted to address that. And so they understood that I knew the state pretty well. And um, I knew the culture of the community, and I was a fierce advocate for it. So 
they offered me the job, and um, I was pregnant with my second child. Um, but I thought that the museum world would be a little bit less travel, so I could be home with my children. Um, that didn't necessarily turn out to be true, but um, but it. But I really thought I have been making grants to organizations and and offering professional development and training to organizations about how they should run, we ought to see if I can do it. And so um, if I can manage a cash flow crisis, um, just like every other arts organization has to do. So I really was excited about the challenge. Well, they certainly are lucky to to have you. Um, I want to also talk a little bit about uh, leadership and what does it take to be a good arts leader? Well, you know, I don't really know. I, I think it takes commitment and hard work. I think people have to understand um, that that you're in it for the health of the industry and the organization and not for yourself. I think people have to believe that you are genuine in that work. Um, I think you have to really care about um, the place and the community where you work. You can't be looking for the next job. And, you know, I often joke about museum directors. I go to these national meetings and they introduce themselves as I'm from such and such museum of art. Before that, I was at such and such a museum. Before that, I was at... And they, they're gypsies. They... Um, move around the country. And like I've said before, sometimes in an art, a museum's lifespan, they need that outside influence. Um, but I have found that we've been able to accomplish some things because of longevity and uh, my commitment to being in this place doing this work rather than building up a resume. Yeah, and I think that that's incredibly important. And you you hit the nail on the head with that. The as federal and state funding for the arts and humanities is once again under discussion. Some private foundations and arts advocates have affirmed the fundamental importance of the national endowments as invaluable resources for harmonious, prosperous, and a democratic society. I want to ask, do you think that these or why do you think that these values are important? But I also want to segue into the work that you all are doing on race and identity, because I think that the fundamental, um, if you really kind of get to the core of why these endowments were were brought forth uh, to be able to um, to make sure that everyone have has access to the arts, that we have to deal with, it, it just kind of goes into this conversation about race and identity, sort of naturally, in my opinion. So, one, why do you think that these values are important? Um, you, you hit on it before, um, just to kind of underscore that point. But, uh, and also, tell us about the work that you're doing with race and identity and your white goal um, show. So, you know, I taught English literature before I got into this arts administration world and a story my staff has heard me tell more than once um, not really a story but um, a piece of literature that 
has formed me um, is Percy Shelley's defense of poetry. Um, Shelley was worried about the Industrial Revolution. Imagine what he'd say um, now. But this was the early 19th century. He was worried about um, us becoming enslaved by our machines and their version of technology dehumanizing the human race. And he argued that artists were even more essential in a situation like that than ever before because what artists can do is influence a person and appeal to their imagination so that just like any good film or play or piece of music or painting, that when an ordinary person is touched by something, they make a leap of their imagination to actually feel what someone else feels, to understand what someone else understands, even if they're somebody from centuries apart or across the world. And he argued that because of that capacity that artists create for an individual to make an imaginative leap, that we can actually, unlike we know of animal behavior now, we can actually change the ways we think. We can change our perspectives. We can change the ways we feel about other people and other things. And so... Shelley argued that, in fact, artists were what he called the unacknowledged legislators of man. And so, again, having actual legislators acknowledge that they need these unacknowledged legislators to uh, create a more humane and just and compassionate world adds the human dimension to the kind of services that we all need to navigate from one place to the other or have a comfortable home or, or a successful school. Um, so I do believe that. I believe that an encounter between a person and a work of art can be transformative. Our strategic plan even articulates this kind of ladder between um, personal engagement and intellectual curiosity to uh, a relation to, you know, kind of a personal understanding that there's a connection between myself and the person in this painting or the idea in this painting. And then it moves to empathy and then, you know, a complete transformation of how you think about something. Not every visitor is going to make that entire progression. But it, if a few do, then we've done our job. And I do think that that leads right into why the museum is so committed to doing important work where we look honestly at our own state and our own place um, through works of art. We know we need artists to help us see ourselves and help us see our history and help us understand what my experience growing up in the Delta was like and how incredibly different it was from somebody who was a direct descendant of a slave. Um, so until we get people in the same room experiencing a work of art, 
that makes them understand each other, um, that transformation may not happen. Um, so that's one reason we're excited about this exhibition that's up now, the, of the Bicentennial Exhibition. It has works of art that depict Mississippi as others have seen us. So we get a little bit out of just looking at ourselves as we see ourselves. Um, but we have works of art from, you know, across the country in art history, from Thomas Hart Benton and George Caleb Bingham and John James Audubon, to Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat. And so um, we're kind of seeing, oh, that's what they thought of Natchez or um, that's what Robert Indiana thought of Mississippi's actions during the Civil Rights Movement. It's, it's jarring at times, but it reminds us that we're not alone. We're in a larger community. So the, ex- the companion exhibition that we have up now is called White Gold, and I actually learned about it from your favorite writer, Hodding Carter, who came to see me and told me that he had been in this exhibit at the Contemporary Art Museum in Raleigh, North Carolina, and that it was a contemporary installation, so it's an immersive experience. You walk in, and you feel like you're walking into a cotton field. Um, when he showed it to me and described how emotional it was for him, it made me realize that cotton is probably the most universally effective symbol in our state's cultural history. It has literally touched everybody who's ever lived here, some in incredibly painful and disenfranchising ways, Um, Some who have made their livelihoods and the economy um, built the economy. And you learn more about it. You learn it built the economy of England, um, that that that's one reason the slave trade was created, was to have free labor in these colonies that they had um, discovered and owned. And so it's not a didactic exhibition. There's no teaching about cotton. You just feel it. And... My hope is that people can also learn to feel what it means from people with very, very different backgrounds from their own. So I hope there's the potential of this kind of reconciliation and healing that art can accomplish because because art affects us on an emotional and spiritual level, not just an intellectual one. Absolutely. You know, Betsy, I can talk to you for for hours. Um, I can obviously talk for hours. (laughs) It's just, I mean, I've been jotting down notes. It's just been, you know, such an education having you uh, in the studio. Um, But I want to ask one last question before we uh, run out of time. How can we go about nurturing a state of art lovers? Well, I think by supporting the Mississippi Arts Commission is one great way because um, it's it's your mission. It's what you do. And um, the second way would be to get art in the classroom of every single child that's going to school so that we we grow a generation of people who are more compassionate and have a longer view and a broader view of their worlds than they currently have. Um, and I think not only teaching them about art, 
but making sure they have the resources to visit museums, to go to concerts, to be part of community festivals. I think that we just have to commit to it and make it happen. Absolutely. It's just been a pleasure having you, and um, you are one of my inspirations in this world um, of of doing this work, and so it's just been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank Thank you, you, Terry.